it was empty. It was a shell of itself. There was no one there. You know, there was just a sense of like everyone had closed up shop and was waiting to see what happened. On July 7th, 2021, Haitian President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated in a nighttime raid against his home in the country's capital, Port-au-Prince. Nearly a month after the assassination, critical questions surrounding the killing, from who masterminded the plot and for what purpose, remain unanswered. The assassination has catalyzed pre-existing political, economic, and societal crises shaking the country to its core, leaving the Haitian people with a deep sense of sorrow and a fear for their country's future. Joining us today to discuss these events is Catherine Porter, a New York Times journalist who reported from Haiti in the days and weeks following the assassination. Catherine Porter has been the Toronto Bureau Chief for the New York Times since February 2017. She joined the Times after 16 years at the Toronto Star. Outside of her native Canada, Ms. Porter has reported from Senegal, Guatemala, Cuba, and most notably Haiti. She was among the journalists who arrived in Haiti shortly after the 2010 earthquake and has returned to the country more than 25 times since to report on its reconstruction efforts. Her book about the experience, entitled A Girl Named Lovely, was published in 2019. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Okay, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, Catherine, it's been a month since the assassination of the Haitian president, Jovenel Moïse. And the events surrounding his assassination remain extremely murky, from who masterminded the assassination and what their motivations were, to what role political insiders played in the killing and continue to play in the ongoing investigation. Could you give our listeners a kind of overview of what we do know and what we don't know as of now? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so uh, here's what we know. Around uh, one o'clock on July the 7th in the morning, um, the, uh, an eruption of gunfire happened outside the president's home, which is in a, a fairly dense but upscale neighborhood outside of Port-au-Prince. Um, and uh, gunmen entered his home, entered his bedroom, shot him more than 12 times or at least 12 times um, in his bedroom, uh, shot his wife, Um, and according to his wife and the investigator rifled through many documents and things in his bags in his bedroom and left. Um, and he was deemed dead, uh, by the, um, uh, coroner the next day, um, or that morning, sorry. So that's what we know for sure. Since then, um, it's been a month, as you pointed out, more than 40 people have been arrested. A handful of them have been charged, um, which is irregular um, in Haiti, but um, this is A, an irregular case, and what is regular in the uh, justice system um, is is rare there. Very, very often the rules are, are not followed. Um, so we know that among the... Um, more than 40 people. There's a, a healthy um, handful, 18 of them are former or, or Colombian former soldiers, mercenaries that were hired for what they said was uh, to help reinstall democracy and fight gangs. 
um, a, a number are also Haitian Americans, um, including a couple of men from Florida who said um, they were there to translate. And uh, very little known about pastor and doctor from Florida with Haitian, you know, who was born in Haiti, who had been holding meetings uh, in the months leading up to the assassination about the transition of government from Moise to what he thought would be him as president. Now, as odd as this is, I will tell you, and I can tell you more later, there were lots of meetings like this happening in Haiti at the time. Um, there have been many transitional governments in Haiti where democracy has been weak and, and hasn't grown deep roots. And there were many groups talking about a post-Moise government because many believed he'd already passed the end date of his five-year mandate and that regardless, he was going to be out um, in a few months. So there were a lot of discussions going on. And this guy was you know, leading them in Haiti, in Florida, um, also in the Dominican Republic, um, the thing about, you know, the Haitian um, authorities have labeled him as a mastermind um, behind this assassination. The problem that, you know, the red flags that have gone up immediately is that he was broke. He had, he had declared bankruptcy in 2013. Um, how would he have funded an operation like this that included mercenaries coming in and a plans to to replace the government and whatever kind of military operation would have to be in place to do that. You know, so even the current um, prime minister of the country has said, like, he doesn't believe that that buck ends there. Um, and despite, you know, the confidence that the police chief of the country had shown in early press conferences, there's still way more questions and answers. Right. And that's a fantastic overview. In terms of more questions and answers, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, there have been some kind of legal irregularities that have occurred since the start of the investigation. Um, first and for, or perhaps most important is three judges who were investigating the case have reported that they are now in hiding following death threats made against them. Could you tell us a little bit about that and perhaps what that means in terms of internal politics going on in the investigation? Mm -hmm. um, well, um, I think it's actually one judge and two court clerks that are in hiding, um, but I could be wrong with that. But regardless, there's three people who are very involved in the investigation that have gone into hiding. And um, two of them spoke to my colleague, Anatoly, who's you know um, still in Haiti right now and talked about how they're moving every um, few hours um, that they've received death threats, that they, you know, these are the people who, this is the, the justice of the peace who was called to the scene um, after the, you know, in, in the hours after the uh, assassination, he arrived around 10. He was a person who gave me those details, who, who told me the details about the president being shot at least 12 times that he could see with his eyes you know, um, that the president was wearing jeans and a shirt, shirt that was coated in blood, that his place had been ransacked, the bags had been opened, that there were papers all over, and that the house, like, you know, that there were shots all over, that it had been completely shot up um, with different caliber weapons. So he was the first one in. And then the two clerks that were working with him on the case um, have said that they've received death threats, that they have been um, received orders 
um, including from um, one of the uh, men who was in charge of security for the palace, who is in custody now, to um, to add people or remove people from the list of suspects. Um, that uh, there were, you know, there was pressure on them to add two political enemies of um, the the former president, Mr. Moise, who had, you know, been attacking these two very rich businessmen. Uh, one is named Reginald Bulos, and the other is Vorb, that had been, you know, in the crosshairs of his government. And there was pressure to add them to the list of suspects. Um, and that, you know, there had been other. There have been other irregularities that, according to them, two of the Colombian men, two of the three Colombian men who had been shot and killed, that their bodies were moved um, and that a, a huge pile of money that was found with their bodies were not um, and it was not included or reported by the police. Um, so all of this is, pretty, you know, and that they've asked for security because of the death threats and have not received it. So all of this is... Um, Worrying, I will say that Haiti has a bad track record when it comes to um, judicial proceedings. Um, corruption is rife uh, within the judicial system there. If you read any, you know, reports, human rights reports um, uh, on the country over the last, you know, how many years, uh, that is a theme that repeatedly comes up and that it's not rare to have people in custody for a long time before they're charged. It's in fact the rule of thumb. Um, and that, you know, uh, bribes and, um, and also coercion and threats against judges are pretty common uh, phenomenon in Haiti. So, you know, but obviously we have the world looking at what happened. There are links to Colombia and the United States. The FBI has sent a team in, in and so is the Colombian um, government to help with the investigation. At least they say they, you know, that was their purpose for them being there. How much investigating they've done, we don't know. But, you know, it's certainly worrying. Like I'm saying that in the context of Haiti, it's not that irregular, but what is really rare is to have, you know, a president in his home, um, which is the most fortified home in the country. He had more than, um, he had uh, regularly 30 to 50 security guards outside, according to his wife, you know, and none of them were, um, were injured in this. So like it, this, this is very rare and there's a lot of uh, focus on this case. So for this kind of overt pressure and irregularities to be happening within, you know, with the world, the world's eyes on this case and the eyes of the FBI and the Colombian um, investigators is, is, it's just the overtness of it is really troubling. And, you know, the most recent um, report that I read in the local uh, Nouvelle newspaper, the Haitian newspaper, was that there have been requests for the UN to step in and help with the investigation and help with the court case. So, you know, I think uh, some in the Haitian government know that they're over their heads and they know that this is very sensitive. Moise had made many enemies, you know, whoever was behind this obviously had um, a lot of money and also had some kind of connections for whatever reason that you have 30 to 50 guards and none of them injured. That's, that's pretty worrying to show that there's rot um, 
within the system. And so to have, you know, this, the, and where were the police that had been called a long time ago? How come they didn't show up too? You know, there's, there's already from the outset, some signs that there will be, um, it would be hard to complete a impartial investigation into this. And these threats um, reported by the justice of the peace and his clerks, you know, just add more evidence to that. Following the assassination, Haiti was plunged into this sort of power vacuum as politicians struggled for control over their government. And in late July, the primary contenders for power reached an agreement under which Moïse's handpicked Prime Minister Ariel Henry would proceed as interim Prime Minister, and former Prime Minister Claude Joseph would serve as Foreign Minister until elections could be held. Now, what can you kind of tell us about Mr. Henry and his new government? Uh, so Henri is a neurosurgeon. He's not as well known in political circles. He has served briefly in cabinets of previous governments. Um, he wasn't known as being completely in the fold of Moise's party, uh, which is a party formed by his predecessor called um, uh, Sweet Mickey, uh, Michel Martelli. Um, so he's less of a known brand, and perhaps that's why... Um, the decision, you know, by the international community to support him happened. Um, you know, Haiti's politics are pretty bloody and pretty brutal, um, but there is a understanding in Haiti that um, a group of foreign powers, particularly the United States, has a really high, a really large role in who gets to be in power and stay in power. If you do not have the support of the American ambassador um, and the American president, it's much harder for you to run Haiti. Uh, their government that you know their elections are funded by foreign governments. Um, they really rely on um, on the being bestowed by uh, and granted their place by the United States, but also another group, you know, a, a coterie of countries who are known locally as the core group. They include Canada, um, France, Brazil, because the Brazil uh, government sent UN troops um, to Haiti after a 2004 coup against Aristide. That's way more information that you need to know. But um you know, this, so Henri is, was, and, and I will say what was really interesting after the, the assassination as, as a Haiti watcher and someone who, you know, knows this about the country, you could see the signs of that almost immediately. Claude Joseph was the interim prime minister. He was supposed to step aside the week that Moïse was, um, Moïse's uh, assassination to make way for Henri, but Henri had not been installed yet. So there was a huge discussion about, you know, who would be, like there was a power, there was a power battle going on um, between the two men, but also between a, a very powerful senator who was the president of the Senate. And the Senate had 10 members who were the only elected members left in government um, because there had not been elections in, in years that had happened in Haiti. So, you know, um, and to make matters more ornate, there's two constitutions, both said different things about who should be in power. So there's this complete vacuum. And you could see afterwards in the language that the men made, you know, they, they said uh, Claude Joseph in his first 
um, press conferences was very clear to say, you know, I've heard from these ambassadors. I've met with a core group. They're behind me, you know, and his, his message was like, I have been sanctioned by the international community. I'm, I'm the one who should be here. And in fact, you know, the head of the UN uh, in Haiti had said that, that they, that they believed that Claude Joseph was a rightful person, according to the constitution that they were following, that he should be there. You know, but um, uh, and, and I met with the senator I've just mentioned, um, Mr. Lambert, and he said, you know, he had also put out a press release that he was going to be installed because one of the constitutions said that, you know, the parliament elects um, in the case of the president being incapacitated, the parliament will re- elect his replacement at a certain time. And, you know, he had been chosen by eight of his fellow senators to be the president, so he was going to be installed. But he said he got a call from many, mostly American diplomats, both in Haiti and in Washington, asking him not to do that. And that, you know, Haiti was just this, he called it a baseball being thrown around by international players who were deciding who should be the next um, prime minister and who should build, who should always, you know, lead the country which was very interesting. But in in the end, the core group chose Henri. And sure enough, soon after they did, he was installed and he installed his cabinet. And whether this means, you know, any change, many critics pointed out that many of his cabinet members had been already cabinet members in the old government, which, you know, not that anyone wanted Moise to die, but he had huge opposition. The streets had been full of protest. Many, many people believed that he was no longer rightly in power, that he had exceeded his term and he should be gone and that he was power hungry and planning to sort of uh, empty out any institution and, and keep uh, become an autocrat. So or a dictator. So, you know, um, uh, many of his old cabinet are, are back in their cabinet roles um, and other people are unknown. And, you know, speaking to former prime ministers and um, even the head of the Nouvelliste, I asked, went through the list and said, do you know any of these other guys? And they said, no, like they're completely nobodies. And whether that is a good thing or a bad thing is to be seen. I think like they don't come with political baggage, but they don't necessarily have a support, you know, of, of a broad swath of uh, a very broken, fractured you know, civil society and whether they'll be able to hold elections, you know, um, is anyone's guess. Like they, they've set their their mandate at twofold. Ariel Henry has set his mandate at two. One is to deal with the security issues um, enough in the country, <clears throat> which is controlled in large, large swaths at this point by gangs in order to hold elections in the fall. Uh, and the other is to get to the bottom of um, the assassination. You know, I, I think having spent three weeks in Haiti, you would have that I just I just returned, like you would be very naive to think that you could have elections in the fall at this point. Literally there are huge sections of the capital that are completely controlled by gangs. Like I cannot tell you how hard it has been to get gas. And the reason it was hard to get gas in Haiti is because the main road to the gas tank farm has been overrun by two warring gangs and they just couldn't get the fuel down that road, you know, and that road not just leads to the tank farms, but it leads to like the whole South department of like all the Southern departments of the 
country. So, you know, how the hell will you hold elections if in whole parts of the city it's too dangerous to campaign, you know, or the only people who could campaign are part of the gangs and whole other parts you just can't reach. So I think like that's a really big problem. And um, I think, you know, we'll see what happens. But I think that um, I, I think it's naive to think it could possibly happen by by the fall. And if it does happen by the fall, what kind of ele- what kind of government do you elect, you know, in, in, in these areas? Catherine, how I'm wondering, how did the Haitian people react to the kind of reality of diplomatic pressure from the core group in choosing their new government? What is the reaction to that then? Oh, well, you know, I went to this soon after that core group, the core group put out a a press release to the effect on on a Saturday and it went out on the UN website. Um, And that very Saturday, there was another one of these big civil society meetings where people from human rights groups and peasant farming groups and political parties and, you know, businessmen and from the chambers of commerce, they were all meeting to talk about what kind, like what kind of Haiti they wanted to have. And they were hoping, they were hoping that there might be a longer interim government that would not just, um, not just get the country to elections, but address some of the really deep issues that um, the country is facing. Anyway, I went around and talked to a lot of them there and the reaction was fury. You know, like, how dare you? You can accompany us, but how can you choose for us who should be the prime minister? Like what, how is that the role of international players? And, you know, one of them said to me, you know, I'd I'd love to, and I, I should tell you, I'm Canadian. I work for the Times, but I'm I'm Canadian. And one of them said, you know, I could just imagine um, like the Haitian government, (laughs) the Haitian ambassador in Canada putting out a press release about who should be the next prime minister. And like, let's imagine that for a moment. It is really shocking. You know, um, uh, I think that so many people were furious about it that I spoke to. um, particularly politically engaged people were really angry. It made them feel like disenfranchised in their own country. And here they were trying to work grassroots to like talk about dreaming for a democracy. And how can you, I mean, how can you like say Haiti needs to like have these democratic elections to uphold this democracy and here's the guy who should be running it. Like it just so antithetical. Um, so there was a lot of anger, um, and fury and, and, you know, and sort of a wariness because these people are also used to foreign countries calling shots in their country, you know, um, and that's a sad reality in Haiti. Um, but I will say also, like, when you go down to a street level, so those people I'm talking about, the politically engaged, the activists and stuff, these are people who are among the Haitian elite, and I don't mean financial elite, although to some degree they are. I just mean like educated elite. And Haiti is a country that has a high rate of literacy, um, a lot of like just a staggering, a staggering poverty. You know, I have lived in many countries around the world from India to Senegal. And I can tell you, you've never seen poverty the way you see it in Haiti. It is shocking. Um, The malnutrition is shocking. So this is a country where a lot of people don't never make it to school. 
and uh, and when you go out into the streets and talk to workers, you know, like the day of the transition to Omri's um, government when he was inaugurating his cabinet, that happened to be the same day actually as one of a number of ceremonies for Mr. Moise. And I went out and talked to workers who were cleaning up the streets and, you know, they don't care. They, they don't have any faith in any government because the truth is there's a massive crisis in their lives. And that crisis is like, they're not safe. There's huge kidnapping problem in the country because of the gangs. There's a huge insecurity problem because of the gangs. One of the cleaners was sleeping on a school floor because the gangs had, had ripped through his neighborhood of Martisant and burned down his small home. You know, so um, he didn't have a cell phone anymore because he said the gang stole everything. Another one broke into tears when I was talking to her because her son had been shot, you know, in a gang fight. Um, she says he wasn't a gang member. They were trying to pressure him to, to join while I was there. There were protests on the street and they were not protesting what was happening in terms of this political battle. They were protesting kidnapping of people in their very modest neighborhoods. People who live in poverty are facing just enormous crisis. They've been hungry for decades, but now, you know, they can't, they can't live without fear of being shot being raped, um, being kidnapped. Uh, and so for them, all of this stuff was just noise, you know, and they just want, they want a reprieve, whether that comes because of the elections and there is some kind of truth to the gangs, I'm sure that would make them happy, but they don't really, there's, there's, a, there's a complete jadedness and a sense that, uh, politicians are out for themselves and have no intersect with their lives. Yeah, that that is a really fascinating but tragic split between those politically engaged and those who kind of don't have the, I hate to say the word privilege, but I, I you know, don't have the ability to be politically engaged because of their kind of immediate needs. So mm -hmm. I'm really the glad bandwidth. you brought that up. Yeah. The bandwidth, exactly. And so, Catherine, in terms of, I, a lot of the times in these podcasts, we'll kind of discuss from a 40,000 foot level. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of dig down into that sometimes, especially when we have the opportunity to interview someone like yourself, who is a reporter. So for the New York Times, you actually went to Haiti to report on the events taking place on the ground. And one in, the, in one of your pieces, you wrote that the capital city, Port-au-Prince, which is normally bustling, has felt deserted. And it was as if the city was holding its breath. I'm wondering if you could just kind of describe what that looked like on the ground to our listeners. Um, sure. I can describe it from two places that I think would be interesting and illuminating maybe for your listeners. So I have been to Port-au-Prince more than 30 times. You know, I first arrived after the earthquake, which was obviously a very specific time. But let's take the earthquake out and start thinking about it once the rubble was cleared. You know, Port-au-Prince is a nightmare to drive around. They have these, you know, it was a city built for like one third of the population now. It has it has surging slums and these really, you know, antiquated infrastructure, including really thin roads, mostly that connect parts of the city. So, you know, normally when I would go, if I had an interview downtown, I would take my computer and just end up working in the car on the way back because I would be in what they call in this marvelous, you know, Creole term, blocus, 
like it's gridlock. The city is in gridlock. Um, and I would just work for the two hours or whatever it would take to, to roll 10, like not even 10 kilometers, a few kilometers to back to wherever I was staying. The way that most Haitians will get around it is they, the, the taxi service is on the backs of motorbikes. So they take a motor taxi and those motor taxis weave in and out of traffic and are incredibly dangerous, but the only like, um, uh, the only way of getting through it. So normally it's really, really busy. Um, and there have been times, you know, since I've been visiting, um, Port-au-Prince that the downtown will be bustling. There's this lovely assembly of, uh, parks, um, called the Champ de Mars. Um, and it's right downtown. It's kind of the heart of the city. They have their little parkettes with some with trees and statues to, to revolutionary heroes, and they abut um, what had once been the presidential palace that was destroyed in the earthquake and has not been rebuilt. Um, and I've been down there before for drinks with people. They have little ice cream places. People sit out during carnival. It's like this um, wonderful place that the whole city would spill into, and they have big floats that go around with music, and everyone's dancing in the streets. It was empty. It was a shell of itself. There was no one there. Um, no one filling those, like absolutely no one. It looked like a ghost town. It, It was quite almost spooky how empty it was. There was, you know, going for days, there was no traffic. The only traffic I saw was around the gas stations. As I mentioned to you, like there's a real gas shortage because of the gangs. So, you know, people will line up for gas for three, four hours. And those are the only traffic jams. Otherwise you could like, it was like, you know, flying around the city in a way I've only done once on election day when there's no traffic. Otherwise I've never, never traveled with that kind of ease. Um, You know, I even saw guys playing soccer on a really busy street and was empty otherwise. That's something I've never seen before. And, you know, there was just a sense of like, everyone had closed up shop and was waiting to see what happened. Like, was there going to be another hit? Was, you know, would the police who have been fighting as it is with the army and with, you know, within factions of itself, would they erupt? You know, would there be, um, would there be some kind of war warfare happening in the city? There was just a real sort of sense of tension. Um, And then the other place I would take you to is, in the far north of the country, there's a city called Cap Haitian. It's the second largest city. And it's actually much more beautiful than Port-au-Prince. It was um, the capital of the former colony of France called Saint-Domingue when Haiti was the richest colony in the world. And it feels a little bit like New Orleans. It has those Juliet, like like the, the old cobblestone streets that are tight with the Juliet balconies. Um, and I, that is where Moise's wife held the funeral on the family, on his family compound just outside of town. And it was really fascinating to go there too. Normally it's considered really laid back. It's, you know, a cute little town that you can walk around in. There's not rates of kidnapping. There's not gang warfare in, in this town like there is in Port-au-Prince. They, the way people get around there is on little like uh, rickshaws, like in India. Um, and um, the day before the 
before the funeral, it just went up in flames. There was um, huge marches uh, of people running up the streets saying, you know, they, they assassinated the president and the police was there, what, what they were chanting. Um, people were crying. Uh, there were very organized protests. They were wearing matching shirts, which is a sign in Haiti always of money. Um, I guess anywhere it's a sign of money, but particularly in a place like Haiti where people don't have money to buy the shirts. Um, and they burnt, um, they, they blocked entrance to the town. So a traditional way of protesting in Haiti is to burn tires, to, sh to shut down a street by burning tires. And there's only, you know, a handful of ways to get into the old colonial city and all of them were blocked with burning tires and people, um, you know, these, these big convoys of people from Port-au-Prince were coming in for the funeral, as well as, you know, the UN ambassadors, the friend, the, the Canadian ambassador, the American delegation were all coming in and people were trying to stop them from coming. And I think for me, what was really interesting about this was that Haiti, since it's, I would argue that Haiti, since its inception, has had certain fracture lines in it. Um, and all of those fracture lines came to the surface at this moment. And whether they were stirred and or, you know, um, prompted by by political actors making um, making speeches or not, you know, you could see them. And those lines, you know, are the North versus the South. Like Port-au-Prince gets all the money, you know, and the North has no money. It's the elite of the country that run all the economy out of Port-au-Prince and, you know, um, versus the, the, the very poor people who live on like a buck 50 a day. It's the light skinned people that they call they call rouge there who are traditionally you know either from um like generations of uh, seven uh, syrian immigrants from like the 1900s to way back to like mixed race um haitians from the revolution who you know versus the poor black um population uh, you could see all of that on the streets with how people were screaming. They were screaming like, we sent you a poor black, you know, a, a northerner and you sent us back, you know, a dead you know, a cadaver. And it's you, the foreign, you know, the, the light skinned oligarchs who are coming up here and we do not want you like, do not come. Like, we, we, we do not recognize your authority. We do not want you here. And we're taking to the streets to protest. Um, and so it was just, it was fascinating for me to be there at that time and see how, how raw those feelings were. And it was the first time that I saw real raw feelings around um, the president's assassination, because I think mostly in Port-au-Prince, there was um, a lot of resignation, like I described. Um, but up north, there was definitely more wounded feelings and, um, and real anger. And you could kind of sort of see like, these are the deep issues of this country, you know, and whoever becomes president has like, has these things to deal with. Um, and yeah, the next day was the funeral. And that was also just a wild Shakespearean event in which like 
protesters showed up there and were screaming, like screaming at the grandstands of people, like you're assassins, you know, screaming at the police chief that he was an assassin. And there was tear gas and um, more guns than I've ever seen. And all of the foreign dignitaries left after only 20 minutes because of security, you know, concerns. Um, so you could just like, you just saw how this was about an assassination of a president, but it's about much deeper things in Haiti too. It's unleashed much deeper things. And there are real feelings of fury about deep feelings of injustice in the country that, um, you know, hopefully at some point will be addressed, but you could, you could just see them so visibly. It was fascinating. Yeah, Catherine, I I really appreciate you painting that picture for us. I think it's extremely important when we have a discussion like this. In our podcast, we kind of always like to finish out with a forward-facing question. So I'm wondering, Haiti, like the assassination of President Moise came at a time of just extreme political upheaval, economic and societal upheaval that you have just described. I'm wondering, what do you think that Haiti might look like in the months to come? Um, and what will that look like for the people on the ground? Um, I, you know, I've gone through waves of real optimism in time. I think after the earthquake, you know, which killed up to 300,000 people in Haiti and destroyed what little infrastructure it had in its capital, there was this real hope that, um, there would be in the words of Bill Clinton, like a build back better. And that hasn't happened. You know, if anything, if you look at the statistics in Haiti, people are worse off, you know, um, the majority of people, you know, or, or they're certainly not better in terms of their levels of poverty, their access to water, you know, um, their their human rights violations against them, their um, levels of hunger, uh, their employment levels, all of these things have not been improved. And so... I just flip back to that and think, okay, after the earthquake, $13 billion pours into this country. And there's all this hope about change. How do you think after an assassination of a president that has far reaching implications, you know, in international dimension, you know, if, if all that goodwill from the earthquake rebuilding didn't help, how do we think there's going to be change now? You know, I don't, I don't see it. I, I don't, I don't see anything changing. I certainly take some hope in this political engaged group that is so diverse and uh, and very, and many of them very young, and many of them had been, you know, expats who had left Haiti and have come back to try and rebuild. I take some hope in their engagement and their demands for social justice and you know, old-fashioned justice. But, um, you know, so far I've seen no indication of, of a, a tilt or a change in that direction. And I'm not sure I've heard anyone who could explain to me how it will happen. I certainly do think, you know, it's got to be grassroots, whatever happens for Haiti. It has to be Haitian-led and directed. And we'll see what happens over the next few months. But, you know, I... I certainly feel like we'll have a longer interim government. You know, the best thing we could hope for is some reprieve from the gangs. You know, like the head of the gang, one of the worst, the most wanted men had a protest in support of Moise, like last week, out in the open. No one arrested him. 
you know, he he called he put out press releases about it. This is a man wanted for murder, rape, you know, torture, um, uh, the most wanted. And so you just look at that and you have to think, huh, well, I don't I don't have great hope that there'll be um, that this will somehow shift something in Haitian society or, or help rebuild in a structural way that needs to happen. I hope I'm wrong. Catherine, we want to thank you so much for being here today to speak with us on this important topic. It's really been a pleasure. It's nice to be here. Thanks for talking. Thanks for your questions. Hey, Pofa listener, before you leave, this past week, Haiti was struck by a magnitude 7.2 earthquake that's destroyed homes, businesses, churches, and has taken thousands of lives. This devastating earthquake further compounds the ongoing crises in the country. But we think the POFA community can make a difference. If you'd like to donate to Earthquake and Humanitarian Relief in Haiti, please follow the links we've listed in the podcast description below. Thanks for your help. We'd also like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF and Gore Institute at Johns Hopkins for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.